Hey everybody, you hear that? Sounds like tea time. Island talk, island talk. Right here on the kitchen island. Island talk, island talk. Right here on the kitchen island talk. Tea time talk. Right here on the kitchen island talk. Yeah, island talk. Keeping it real and never fake. Right here on the kitchen island talk. Dishing the tea with Lady V, B, J, Show T. We forever styling. Real talk about real issues. If you don't like it, then go get a tissue. Walking, talking like a diva should. Wouldn't choose another sisterhood to Island talk, island talk. Right here on the kitchen island talk, island talk. Right here on the kitchen island talk, island talk. Right here on the kitchen island talk, island. Hey, we are back at the island, and this is Benita, your favorite Capricorn. This is BJ. I just want you to keep listening. And Cheryl T's in the house. This is Marcy. I'm back. Yay, we have Marcy back, our one of our favorite co-hosts. And today, y'all, we have a very special guest. We are so, so excited, and we are going to get started. Our very special guest is an award-winning journalist, documentarian, news anchor, and executive producer. She has spent her career championing the stories of marginalized communities and has been the recipient of three Emmy Awards the George Foster Peabody Award, and the Alfred DuPont Award for her reporting work. The list goes on and on, on and on and on and on. The list goes on and on for all her awards and accolades. She is known to show compassion, respect, and integrity while doing fair, I say again, fair reporting. She is married to her husband, Brad, for 26 plus years and the mother of four beautiful children, two teenagers and two young adults. I hope I have that right. Mm -hmm. Um, We are privileged and honored to have our guest today. And we want to soak up every moment with her. So without further ado, she is known in my household as the queen of documentaries. Documentaries, I'm sorry. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) We would like to welcome to the island, Soledad O'Brien. Hi guys, thank you for having me. So nice to talk to you guys. Yes, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to hang out. We are in San Antonio and um, the weather is finally warming up here. Thank goodness. Uh, We actually had some cold days, which is- Should I not tell you about the weather here in sunny Florida where- Oh, we're The other day, you know, I live in New York most of the time, but in the other day it was- People in New York were freezing. So my daughter's like, mom, I am not, mom, I am not built. I am not built for this. My daughter was like, mom, I'm not built for this cold weather. And I was like, we're uncomfortable too. It is 87 degrees here and it is extremely uncomfortable. So we're also suffering. We're, we're challenged too. She did, not, she did not appreciate that at all. Well, we are all here in San Antonio and we are loving the weather finally warming up. But you know what? We are so ready to get to it. So we are excited and we're going to get started. Let's Let's dive right in. Well, I'm the first up and I just want to say again, we're so excited to be in your presence and have you on the Kitchen Island at the Kitchen Island with us. And Vanita mentioned that you had so many awards and I know that you had the George Peabody and three Emmys and the NAACP President's Award for covering so many amazing things. And some of them were really catastrophic events, uh, which impacted the lives of a whole lot of people all over our country and the world. 
And so I know when you've been to all of these things and had to cover them in news, what impacted your life the most and why? Did anything touch you more than another? Yeah, I think Hurricane Katrina coverage, which was 2005, was probably the most, um, I mean, I never like to compare disasters, you know, but, yeah. but in terms of my growth as a journalist, I would probably pick that because I think it was the moment that I realized, and this is going to sound so cheesy, but that journalism was about service. And whenever I'm mad at journalists and mad at what I'm seeing on TV, I think like they really don't get it, that, that this is an opportunity to explain things to people and to serve your audience. And I think, you know, I kind of went into Katrina with this idea of like, there's a storm and you go in and you're like, oh, actually the story is not about a storm, right? The story is about people who are consistently ignored. The story is about um, uh, this sort of folks, like why can't they leave? And how come we don't understand why people don't leave? It's about, you know, federal and state officials and local officials in many cases, just not failing to help their people. I mean, a lot of the mistakes that were made were just egregious and unforgivable. And, and a system that eventually, you know, gave way and just failed the people who most needed the help. And so I it kind of, I mean, it's, I, it just dawned on me like, oh, yes, sure, it was about a storm. But Katrina wasn't about a storm, right? It's about haves and have nots. It's about who has political power. It's about who do we care about when something, you know, let me promise you if that happened in Greenwich, Connecticut, everybody would have been airlifted out of there pretty fast. And you would have thought that New Orleans was like, you know, so far away, we could never get, you know, and, yeah. and so there was a lot that I learned about it. So I think I'd say New Orleans, because it came at a critical time in my life as a journalist, as a young journalist, and taught me a lot about how to be a better journalist. And also, uh, we won, obviously, a lot of awards for our coverage. But it really wasn't about that. It was about like, understanding how to connect people to a story. And, uh, and so it was a very important story for me, but I, I think just, I also learned a lot. One more question about that. I know that when I watched Katrina and I listened to you and your, and how you reported, there was such a sadness that I had because the people weren't getting assistance right away. And so I don't know how the journalists, I know that probably impacted you too, but was there anything that the journalists could do besides report it or did they report to their their companies, do something or I don't know if you saw anything different or unique there, but it just hurt me so that the, the assistance yeah. didn't come right away. I, I guess I've always thought that like my job is to tell the stories. You know, often we're covering like a, a tornado in a trailer park. And, and what people actually want is a, is a light shown on, on where they are. Like the most valuable thing you can do is not hand out $20 bills, although that would be nice. It really is about bringing like the attention of the country and the world. Uh, that to me, I think is my biggest ability. Um, and also, you know, talking about a lot of, I think my success has been, I don't hate poor people and I don't hate people of color. And I think often journalists don't care about them very much and they don't think they can make their career off of covering them in a way. Right. So you see a lot of glomming onto politicians and powerful people versus like people who just need actually someone to point a mic in their direction so their story can get out. So I think a lot of just telling those stories of people who otherwise would sort of go on undercovered, underreported was another thing to do. When, when CNN is actually kind of an amazing place to work, I covered Katrina during um, CNN, when I was working at CNN, 
And we built like a village. I mean, it was crazy. Every morning you get up and you put on boots and then they would just take them. You just take them off and leave them because especially in St. Bernard Parish, like the mud was so, and it was just, it was with oil. It was just disgusting. I mean, and that just smelled so bad that you literally would step out of your boots and into your car and just leave them where they were. It was crazy. Um, and so CNN had a whole system and a whole built a whole kind of village basically, which meant we could hire a lot of people. We had round the clock chefs because we had a, we had 50 crews there um, and which was great. So I felt like for people who were staying, we were able to say, you're a chef. Fantastic. You're hired. Your restaurant might be closed, but you're going to work. And, and so I, I often think like the best way to help people sometimes is just give them work to do, put them to work, hire people, hire runners, hire fixers higher, you know, and CNN uh, has deep pockets. And also um, we had a lot of crews there. So we were able to, I think, do that pretty well as well. Thank you. That was awesome because I like the people aspect of it. I think sometimes as journalists, we forget about the people aspect of it. And to me, it's like, that's the whole aspect of it. Right. The people. Yeah. I like the idea of giving back to them in a way of where they still feel, you know, needed that sense of belonging it's not a handout it's hey we have something for you we can work together so yeah and if you're if you're a and if you're a chef you want to be a chef you know you you want to do your work I mean it went of course in New Orleans especially man can they cook so I mean it was amazing for us yeah I just want to ask another a quick question I know I'm going off script but speaking of shining the light on situations and how the media does that in order to get the attention of not just communities but the worlds uh, but the world what are your thoughts on what's happening in Ukraine yeah, I think journalists are doing a very good job. And I think um, I've learned a lot from people who are covering the story. I mean, I think Fox News is terrible. So I think it's not a really good place to learn about what's happening, to be honest. But I think yes. um, but I think a lot of reporters are putting their lives very much at risk in order to bring us the stories and to, to give a very balanced look. You know, here's what we know. Here's what we think. Here's what we don't know, but we're hearing, which I find, I, I think people have done a really good job. I don't cover a lot of wars, so I'm always very impressed by my colleagues who really put themselves out there. It is hard. It is miserable. It is scary. And, and of course, obviously, it much, much worse for the people who are you know, fleeing a, a war zone if they can or staying to fight. So I, I'm always very impressed by the people who are able to do that. They've done a great job at it so that we can actually know and the world can actually know what's happening. Right. Educating, informing, bringing information to people who would, who want to understand something, right? It's like, how do you serve your audience? Yeah, that kind of brings me to my question, Soledad. Um, for me, a lot of the times I have to kind of refocus and center myself. But one of my questions to you is what motivates you? What is it that helps you remember the why? Why you get up to do what you do every day? Well, my joke answer was always direct deposit every day. <laughs> right. <laughs> my husband used to joke about. Um, uh, you know, you know, I think I, I think I'm good at my job. And so I think a lot of my why of what I like about my job is. I like being good at something. I like, I'm, I'm good at it. I don't have no problem arguing for like, it should be me. You should put me on a plane. You should send me in because I'm very confident in my abilities. And I wasn't always, but I really have gotten to the point of like, here's the value that I can add. I remember once covering John Benet Ramsey, kind of like the 10 year aftermath and oh. just thinking like, I don't need to be here. I'm not adding value. I mean, I'm here with literally 90 other crews. There's, yeah. I want to be in a place where I can add value, where I can say, 
this person spoke to me because of who I am and what I've done and they knew me and they recognized me or they, they felt like I would tell their story well. And so there was a value. Right. I remember fighting with my bosses at CNN to go to Haiti in the wake of the, the aftermath of the earthquake. Like it is important that people of color go to Haiti. Like I'm, and they didn't even get it. And I was like, no, it's, I'm telling you. And I, right. you know, I, got, I was finally sent into Haiti. So you constantly have to fight for that stuff. But I, my why is always, is there a value to me going? And sometimes you're on a story and you're like, I cannot believe I am missing so much stuff at home for this, where I'm adding no value. And, you know, like I, this could be, you know, we're, we're 300 yards from the story. No one's getting access. It's, it's not even a, it's not even a story that I need to be doing. And so, you know, for me, I've always tried to focus on like, what value can I bring? And sometimes, I mean, I'm well enough known now that sometimes I have the value of like a 600 pound gorilla, right? I can be like, I would like to do this. I know nobody else wants to do it, but that's okay. I am the anchor. So we are doing it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I spent a lot of years in the industry to get that power, frankly, you know, like we're going to do it. Uh, I have a 14 awesome. year old and she's always like, she, what is it? Yes. Queen. <laughs> Mom said. But you know, like you, that, that, that no. takes many years of like, you don't, you know, you don't walk in the door of being able to do that, but no. some point. and if you're not going to use that power in a way that's going to move things in the right direction, then like, why are you there? Right. I was having an interesting conversation with a colleague of mine, a, a white woman who we, who does a lot of freelance work with us. Great woman. And she said, you know, I, she, we do a show of uh, the show that I do for uh, Hearst is very, we focus a lot on diversity. And she said, you know, I'm really like, maybe I took someone's job. Like maybe I shouldn't be here. And I said, listen, you are here. You're very talented. You deserve to be here. We just don't, we don't, you know, we don't hire just anybody, but now that you're here, right. You can go into meetings and say, as the white lady in the room, here's what I'd like to see divert. Like you have a ton of power. Right. You don't need to apologize ever for being in the room. Now square yourself right up at the front of that table and say, you know, diversity is important to me. You know what I would like to see? Here's what I demand. Here's what I need. Yeah. Right. So I think, you know, if you're going to be, if you get the opportunity to be in the room, you can't just sit there quietly, you know, doing nothing. You actually have to kind of put your neck out. And right. I, I would say that my, my work history has been kind of a history of that, of like, no, oh, you know, if, if it doesn't work out, then we'll just go do something else. Right. No, I, but otherwise, why are you there? No. And I agree with you completely. So I read your book, the next big story. Oh, thank you. Wow. It was awesome. I called it. You need to read her book. I was like, it is awesome. You're going to read it. And as a mom, as a working mom, you know, starting a career years ago, but going through it, like you said, a lot of times I call it putting your big girl pants on. And I come across sometimes females that I find that they're very timid or they hold back or they don't. And I'm like, no, sister, put your big girl pants on. You walk right in there. It's and hard though, right? It's hard and it's scary. And, and it, I think for, listen, and you know, as a Latina, right? You're, yeah. You were raised with the whole, put your head down. Yeah. Don't make too much noise. Be grateful. Did they give you a raise over right. Five extra dollars. Oh, be grateful. Okay. Yeah. You know, don't, oh, don't, don't argue. I mean, my parents were like that. They were immigrants to this country and they were kind of like, listen, you know, you got a good thing and is it so bad? And, you know, God forbid you just lose your job. And, and so I, I do think um, I understand when people feel that way. It's hard. It's very hard to do that if you feel like you don't have a safety net. And I think it's something you have to learn, right? It's, it 
And, and it, I, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I think it took me 30 years of like, at some point you're like, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to go do it. And, and it helps to be married and have a second income. Right. So you feel like, well, you know, my partner has yeah. his job if, if God forbid something happens. So it gives you a lot of flexibility. So I've tried to, you know, sometimes I give advice to young women journalists and I'll tell them like, sometimes the advice is keep your mouth shut. If you're new, people don't want to hear from you. They don't need a critique. They don't, you know, figure out who your allies are. Go and have coffee with that person. Say, actually, uh, I think here are some other stories. You know, nobody wants who's been at the business for 30 years wants to be challenged by a 25-year-old. Like, I could spin them and tell them, use your voice, girl, and you do you. But the reality is you'll get fired. You won't get fired right away. Right. No one gets fired right away. But it'll be six months or a year, right? And then all of a sudden you start getting negative reviews. We all know this. Mm-hmm. You know, and then you're being worked out the door. So right. I, you know, I've seen it. And so I've always tried with young people, especially if I speak at colleges, to be very honest about like, this is what it means. But there's a lot to learn in corporate America. Sit there, keep your mouth closed and figure it out. Who, who's an ally? Who's helpful to you? Who likes you? Who, who wants your insight? But yeah, lecturing the CEO on the third day you're in the building, probably not a good idea. (laughs) Read the room, read the room. (laughs) I had a young woman who was my intern, such a nice young woman, but badly guided. And I was at CNN. So early on, maybe my first or second year at CNN. And she told me, she started as my intern. She said, I just want to let you know, I don't get coffee because I just feel like that's a stereotypical role for women. And I'm like, okay. And, And where I worked and to this day, you know, whoever's going gets coffee. It's not really a male, female role. It's like, are you going to Starbucks? Well, then get coffee. And I said to her, so you should know, I, I don't write letters of recommendation. <laughs> like, like we can, the two of us can play this game. Like, and I felt badly because, yeah, but, yeah. but like someone had, 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 I think, given her bad information about how you walk in and you tell them you don't get coffee. And, and yeah. I was just like, wow, that's just, no, the answer is I do anything now. Two months in, it might become a problem. Why am I getting coffee and everybody else is getting to do other things? Why am I getting coffee and I'm not being assigned, right? I get it. I have been there, so I get it. But this idea of like walking in and then telling everybody what you don't do is so just badly thought out. And, you know, I think she got it. I did write her a letter of recommendation at the end and she got coffee and I got her coffee because in our newsroom, (laughs) whoever is going gets the coffee. Um, you know, but sometimes I think young people come in with this, it's not their fault. They don't know. Right. And someone has clearly sat them down and tried to help them and has done a bad job. No, I agree. I mean, yeah. What else I mentioned about your book also was I appreciated it because I read it and it kind of helped me to recenter myself as far as like, what is it that inspires me to keep being a working mom? Like you said, having the two household income, it's nice having it. And there's some days as women were like, man, maybe I shouldn't be working but so then many days where you're like I am and be like I'm out exactly. oh yeah I'm like oh, and then you're like you know what? you found me don't worry and, and then you're like you know what I like indoor plumbing so exactly. I think you're actually gonna <laughs> exactly. but I get it I think I think it's much more helpful to women to say talk about your frustrations every day is not perfect and also I love the idea of like if it's not working for you let's find the next thing What's the next job? What's the next opportunity? How do you figure out what your skills are and what you're doing and say, okay, I have 10 actual really good skills. How do I take that to something else? You know, the idea of like just up and quitting, I just don't think is very um, strategically wise. I'm a big believer in like quit, 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 but with really good strategies around how you're quitting. Right. 
course. And I thought about it and I'm like, you know, no, I am good at what I do. Like, this is why I got selected to do this because I'm good at it. And then I started thinking like, and what you mentioned earlier, I was like, yeah, you're right. When we are good at something, it's like, that's my purpose. That's what I'm good at. I love it. Aside from being a good mom and a wife and all that, but it's like, this is my thing. This is for me. I'm good at it. And I can help someone else to be good at it too. When I was supposed to go to uh, Haiti, my, um, my kids be like, oh gosh, they got to send mom to Haiti. She's losing her mind. You know, like, <laughs> eventually your own children realize like your happy place where you're a nice balanced human being is, you know, it's some people it's staying home with their kids all day. That is not me. Some people it's not having any kids at all. That's not me. Some people, you know, and for me, it's like, I actually want to be, you know, reporting in the field after 20 some odd years. I was like, you know what? I don't want to do that so much. I want to do some other stuff. So yeah, I think it's, I think sometimes we're so hard on women and give them very like prescribed, this is what a good mom is. And, you know, I just think at some point you're like, yeah, that's all bullshit. And, you know, as you get older, it's fun about being, I'll be 56 this year. And it's so much fun to be like, ah, freedom. I mean, the number of times I've had women be like, I just don't know. I'm like, oh my God, what do you want to do? Exactly. You, yes. You <laughs> like it or you good at it, it then go do it. It's not Once you like get into your fifties, you're like, whatever. Oh, right. oh, completely. You really do. You're like, oh, thank you so much for that input. <laughs> well, I love your confidence and I love the fact that you know your value and you know your worth and you walk in it. And I would love to see more brown in um, uh, brown girls to do the same thing. You know, you can test your worth, right? Like I remember the first time I gave a speech, I didn't really want to do it. And they said, well, what would you need? What do we have to pay you? And I'm like, I would need $5,000 thinking like, and they're like, done. I was like, oh, (laughs) clearly way low, but you know, (laughs) you can do a a similar thing, right? You can say, is this worth it? And there was a lot of times when my kids were little where it's like, I know if I say yes to this amazingly fun event where Elton John's going to be performing live, I don't stay home and do math homework. Like you just have to sit down and slowly like calculate the cost benefit analysis, you know, and, mm-hmm. and some days it's like, it's out in John. And other days it's like, actually, I need this fourth grader to understand math. So no, I don't need to do that. I don't, I don't, I don't want to do it. And I, I think you just get really good at, you just get better as you get older at, at figuring that out. So I wouldn't say I always knew my worth, but there comes a point where you're like, I'm good. If this isn't good for you, I'm good. I'm good. And that's very valuable and that's very powerful. I think it's very empowering. And I want to say not just brown and black women, I'm going to say all women. I would love to see young girls to understand their worth and, and, and their value. And conversely, right, also understand that there is a huge value when you're younger to sucking it up and working for free and getting experience and like glomming on to a great mentor and trying to figure it out because that person will pay you back and lots of help and experience, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I I think you're right. I think it's, I I do worry about that young woman who was asking me, you know, that telling me that she didn't want to get coffee. I I felt like someone gave her that lecture about know your worth. And Mm -hmm. meanwhile, the real conversation is getting coffee is everybody's job. Getting coffee doesn't mean anything. Now getting coffee 200 days in a row when no one else is being asked, now we have a problem. But like, there's, I, I empty the garbage cans at my company, I'm the CEO. But you know what, if it needs to be done, it's going to get done. Yeah. It needs to be done. So you do it. And I, I think women are very good at that. So often it's, you know, you got to do that plus the other half of it, which is while I'm doing that, I also need to be on a very fast path to doing really interesting things. 
Awesome. Uh, so speaking on your um, speaking about your own company, Starfish Media Group, Soledad O'Brien Productions, is a multi-platform media production and distribution company founded by you in 2013 and is dedica- dedicated to uncovering stories, issues of race, class, wealth, poverty, and opportunity through personal narratives. So let nine me years today. Nine years wow. today. Awesome. Awesome. It's like 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 a marriage. It goes, you know, first year, third year, ninth year. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? Was was no I don't know. <laughs> We've been married 26 years. I, I remember year one and, and kind of year two and sort of year nine, but like, what? <laughs> so let me take this opportunity, speaking of your company, to congratulate you and your company thank on your you. latest docu-series, Black oh, and Missing. Um, so far, it has won two awards. Uh, one is an Independent Spirit Award and an Image That's Award. a very big deal, by the way. I have to, because I, I know yeah. most of my friends have not heard of an Independent Spirit Award, but like it tees you up to win an, an Emmy. And if we weren't a series to win an Oscar, so we're not an Oscar content. But like, it's a it's a big deal. So of thank you. But that one's, my husband's like, is that a big deal? Is that not a big deal? <laughs> like, it's a big very deal. big deal. At an NAACP uh, Image Award as well. Also a big yeah. deal. Very big deal. And so I I want to say that I am proud to say that my daughter is a production coordinator on Black and Missing. And she's actually sitting here in the studio. Say hi. Come on, say hi. Come on. There you go. Hi. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) You know what? So let me just tell you before you go on, when when I started trying to get a job in uh, in TV news, my mom used to call the PBS station. She'd be like, we are PBS viewers, and she call and try to get me a job. Oh, <laughs> Your awesome. mother embarrassing you. Your mother embarrassing you around work things is nothing new. She's like, hey, so my daughter's looking for a product. Uh, I was, I didn't have a job, so I was looking for a production assistant thing. And I'm like, so mothers will always do that. They will literally show you off, call you out, highlight you. I think the people at PBS thought I was insane because they're like, so your mother's calling to get you a job. But I appreciated it. And then years later, I was covering a bridge collapse in Minneapolis. And this woman comes up to me and she's like, are you still at O'Brien? I said, yeah. She goes, my daughter needs a job. And she dragged us. <laughs> and we hired her on the spot to help us with our coverage. So it often works. So thank you, mom, for shouting out your daughter, who, by the way, is awesome. And, and congratulations to us on our big awards. It's very exciting. Yes, exactly. So my question is, what is, what was your motivation to start the production company, SOB? You know, I was working at CNN and a new boss came in who's recently been fired and um, and he made it very clear he didn't want me to anchor. He just said, you know, he he thought he just he liked boy girl teams. I was anchoring a show by myself. And um, and, and I remember thinking like it's actually a, a lesson that I tell the young people all the time. You know, if you're working in a place where they don't see a vision for you, mm-hmm. you should probably run. And again, I had to sit down and I was like, I had done good work. I was getting paid well. I had a good reputation. I had a pretty big following. I was like, I don't think I should, like, I get that he doesn't like me, which is certainly his prerogative, but I was like, I, I don't think I does. He wanted me to, to, to be a fill-in, which meant like if Anderson wanted to take vacation, I'd do his show. And then if someone else wanted to take, you know, and I was like, I have four kids. I can't work that. That's a crazy, terrible schedule. But also I'm like, I don't, 
I don't think I need to do that. Like, I, I think that I have enough credibility in my name to start something. And I ran around and asked all my friends, all of whom were like, yes, of course, I'm not really, you know, who knows that they were telling the truth. But I really <laughs> felt like, you know, I, I get that he doesn't, he doesn't believe in me. And so I, you never should stay in a place where your boss doesn't believe in you. Now, that doesn't mean you walk out the door immediately. But it happened to me once before in San Francisco, I was working uh, at the San Francisco local station, KRON TV, the NBC local. And and I had a boss who, he liked me fine. I wanted to learn how to anchor. I wasn't anchoring then. And he's like, we have a lot of female anchors. And I remember thinking like, hmm, okay, I'm going to need to leave. Not immediately. I left probably a year later. But like, if someone doesn't think this person's amazing and we need to invest in them and really, you know, then why would you stay? It just, yeah. I just felt like I don't need to suck it up yet. I don't need a, you know, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad I did. And so I talked to young people a lot about that. Like there's nothing more depressing than having someone who's your, your boss, who just doesn't believe in your abilities. It's really, it's really, you know, kind of kills your morale. So you do have to get out of there. You just have to do it strategically and thoughtfully and do it in a way where, you know, you can hang on to your money and think about what you're building, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm all for it if you do it in an intentional way. So I, I would like to ask a follow-on question to that. So based on your production company, I know you've produced many uh, profound documentaries and you've reported on some profound documentaries. I love documentaries. That's where I'm going. <laughs> uh, you, you did uh, such as your escape from J uh, Jonestown. I believe mm. you did a report on that. That was like major. I watched that when I was oh, young. That's a great doc. You did an excellent job on that. I mean, it was so- Can I tell you a funny story about that? So we went to um, Guyana to go cover that story. And I'm there with my uh, hairdresser, Wendy, um, who hates to travel and does, you know, but she has to go because I needed to travel with a hairdresser. And they tell us there's tons of bugs. So before you leave the plane, spritz yourself. So we're on this little tiny plane and we're covering ourselves with bug spray and we get on a plane, there's no bugs at all. And it's like, you know, <laughs> meanwhile, everybody on the plane hates us now because we've sat on an enclosed space, spritzing bug spray all over our bodies. Uh, but it was a really remarkable, that was a great doc and a really remarkable doc to do. We did a great job. It was really NBC story in a lot of ways, right? It really involves an NBC correspondent. And a lot of the feedback we got that our, our doc was far better, far superior uh, than than the you know than NBC, which actually had all of the the footage, so it was a very absolutely. Big that was one of my favorite documentaries because you you reported on the people after the fact, you know. Yeah, it was a crazy and where they were after the fact. So, but based on you know your production company, you did Black uh, Blue Black, and then also your latest one <laughs> that you just uh, won the award for. Was there any documentary that you did that you learned something so shocking that it stuck with you? Yeah, you know, almost every time because a documentary is a very deep dive. You just you just don't know it until you get into it. Um, we did a doc, uh, a, a Latino in America doc, where we looked. Is that right? We did a story yes. on Shenandoah, Pennsylvania, a mile. Mm -hmm. Shenandoah, Pennsylvania is a mile square. I mean, it's tiny. And we did a story on uh, this town where there was a guy who was very. Um, anti-immigrant, anti-Latino specifically. His name was Joe Miller, Joe Miller. And in the morning we shot Joe Miller. He was hanging up the American flag on his house and then the Confederate flag on his house and then the um, Marine Corps flag, he was a Marine. And so I said to Joe Miller, so clearly you 
know, you've been fighting against. You're trying to get all the Latinos removed from Shannon, uh, from this town, Shenandoah in Pennsylvania. Um, and he's very adamant about it and very aggressive. And I said, you know, you, you seem to feel this very deeply emotionally. Like what, what job, why are you doing this? Because, you know, immigrants steal your job. I'm like, oh my gosh. So tell me about the job that someone stole. He's like, oh, no one stole my job. I'm like, oh, clearly you have a dear close friend who lost their, I mean, you, you're so emotionally invested. Tell me about your friend whose job was stolen. Uh, I don't have a friend who lost a job. I'm like, so, so Joe, who are we talking about? He goes, the black people. And I, I literally in the dock, I, I laugh out loud, right? Here's a man who's hanging up the Confederate flag in the morning on his house, telling me how concerned he is for the black people in Shenandoah, Pennsylvania, of which I think there are probably 10, you know? And so like, I think you just begin to realize it was really our early coverage of just sort of racial politics and how none of it actually had to be based in any kind of fact, right? Today, we see people covering critical race theory. And even in this, you know, conversations around the Supreme Court justice, you know, like they don't even know what they're talking about, but, but you, I mean, that just made me laugh. He, and I think he genuinely felt it. He genuinely felt like he's advocating for black people as he hangs up a Confederate flag in his house and that he can keep those two thoughts in his head simultaneously. So yeah, almost every time I do a doc, I learn a lot because I mean, I think they're just such a deep dive that you just, you can't, you just can't help it. So a uh, follow-on question to that. How do you select uh, which subjects or events that you create a documentary for? Well, I run a company now. So often, most of the time, it's what can sell. You know, for example, mm-hmm. when we did Black and Missing, you put together a sizzle reel and then you go to HBO and BET and ABC and NBC and you say, we think this would be a great doc. We need you guys to give us a chunk of money to go and do it. Um, HBO is a great partner to work with. There are a lot of, I think they take a lot of risks. Um, and so, so some of it is you, you pick the stories that you can sell. We've had stories that we just couldn't sell. And it's very hard. You can't really spend millions and millions of dollars on something that you just cannot sell. So often it's that, you know, then we kind of pick by what interests us and what we have access to. Most documentaries that are good, you have to have access. A documentary mm-hmm. where people don't have the access and they're reporting it kind of from the outside usually is not a very good doc because okay. the whole point, right, is to get someone who's telling you something at the moment it's unfolding. That's what makes a doc riveting. So if they don't really have access, and if I've, I've you know, and I've had people call me up and say, hey, we should do this doc. I'm like, right, but I don't, I don't know the people. I don't have access. I can't get access. So access for documentaries is really kind of everything. So based on the new streaming services, and we have a ton of new streaming services. Thank God. I love them all. <laughs> yes. Has it made it easier to get yes. your doc- documentaries yes. out there? Awesome. Absolutely, right? You want as many, you want as many potential customers as possible. So absolutely. Yeah, it's great. It's been great. I mean, especially because they 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 need to spend money, they need to fill their time. You know, the worst thing that you could have is one, and we used to have this, you know, a few years ago, right? We had very, you know, not very many competitors who are looking for content. Now everybody's looking for content. And it's been interesting too to see how many businesses, right? Like um, how many, uh, you know, businesses are starting their own streaming services because they feel like, well, we have customers and we have people we want to serve. And we, why don't we do our own? I find that very fascinating. So yeah, if you're in the business of selling, it's amazing. Absolutely. Wow. And on that note, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. <laughs> Hey, 
Hey Islanders, we just want to check in with you personally. We would love to hear from you with feedback about your favorite episodes, any ideas you have about possible future topics, and guest suggestions. We can be reached at our email, which is kitchenislandtea at gmail.com. Also reach out to us via Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We look forward to hearing from you. In the meantime, be safe, mask up, and keep hope alive. Ciao! And we're back at the island with Soledad O'Brien, and we're having a great time talking about anything and everything. So Soledad, (laughs) I have one question for you. We hear about people of color experiencing all kinds of racism and discrimination. I'm sure you've had a few situations yourself, but have you ever been in a situation where you expected the worst, but someone you least expected turned everything into a positive for you? Oh my gosh, all the time. You know, I'm, I think I'm a, I think I'm, I'm a, I'm a realist, right? So I, I often will steal myself for like, oh, this is going to be a thing, you know, and the number of times it's one of the things I've really enjoyed about living in Florida. I'm here usually what we call the, the equestrian season. Cause I ride. So I come in usually in December and we leave early uh, April. And it is just amazing to me. And this is not just here in Florida. It's really a lot of places, just how friendly people are. You go in thinking like, they're not going to want a reporter here. They're not going to want me to cover this story. And the number of times you're like, wow, everyone's great. And they're friendly and they're nice. And they, I mean, it happens so often in so many ways. Sometimes I think around race, but often not around race. Just, you know, often, you know, do people want to tell their story? I'm knocking on their door, asking them to talk into the camera. And, you know, so I'm always very pleasantly surprised. And, and then of course you have the opposite, right? Where you're like, you have a friend who you've known forever. And then they say this thing and you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and you call your best friend you're like you know i just had the weirdest conversation <laughs> yeah i'm not really sure how to take this conversation i just had so you know so i think it goes both ways and it is always both times a reminder right of stop judging people before you actually talk to them and right. and don't always give a pass to people just because you've known them and now they've said a thing and you're like did they just say, you know, you're not really black? Or did they just say, you know, boy, you speak so well? Or did they just say, <laughs> you all know, because we've all been there. Yes, um, been so, there. You know, so I think it's, it is constantly a reminder of like, slow your roll, let everybody be who they're going to be and let them prove themselves to you for good or for bad. Yes, accept everybody as they are and give them a chance so that you can learn who they are. You're right. Exactly. You're right. Exactly. I'm a New Yorker, so we give everybody a chance to fail us. <laughs> that is true. I so I do have a question. And my question is, because when I, like I said, I read your book. And so you've met a lot, a lot of people along the way. Is there anyone that you have not met in life that you would love to meet? And it doesn't have to be anybody, you know, anybody famous. It doesn't have to be anybody, you know, it could be even somebody. I always think of it a lot of times as like, people we never met that were part of our family. That were yeah, that's such a great question. Yeah. yeah, you know, so celebrity-wise, Luther Vandross, I was supposed to interview him once and um, he didn't like to travel. And so he bailed on us. We were, I was anchoring weekend today. And then a girlfriend of mine is like, oh, 
oh, Luther Vandross is going to be on your show. You know, we do a spin class on the Upper West Side in Manhattan. (laughs) (laughs) He just bailed on us. So I was kind of happy because I loved him so much that I was actually worried he wouldn't live up to my expectations because I loved him that much. So it was kind of like, oh, I'm off the hook. I just don't have to worry about that. Um, You know, I think... Honestly, now my parents passed away a few years ago, really close to each other, about 40 days apart. And I think like, as you get older, you begin to realize, like, I wish I could talk to some of their friends, you know, people who you kind of knew a little bit, but you didn't know in any kind of way that helped illuminate their story. You know, like my parents were very, my dad was from Australia. My mom was Cuban. And because I think they were, you know, born in the thirties, they, they didn't talk a lot about themselves right now. Everybody's like, let me tell you about me, yeah, but I know. <laughs> people didn't really do that, you know? And so I had to interview them for my memoir, my book, and, um, I learned a lot, but I wish that there were so many people who weren't in their lives anymore, who I could have just asked them, like, what were they like? What did they do? You know, that, that to me probably is the most interesting. I've never been one of those people who is like, I want to have dinner with Jesus Christ and the Pope. I, I've always been like, I like kind of regular people who can tell you the stories of a community and kind of like just the, you know, what, what's happening in the world versus right. you know, the, the bold face names outside of Luther Vandross, who I loved. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, did you ever get to go to hear him in concert? I actually I heard did. him four, I four did. times. Yes, yes he's right. He's amazing. amazing. And he has that ability, like a couple of people, but not a lot of people, you know, where you think like, I believe he is singing this song to me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Chair is still a chair. <laughs> I love it. Glad you sang. And you're like, oh, he's singing to me. Um, so yeah, you know, uh, I, I, I really was such a big fan. So I both was really sad that I never got to interview or even meet him in person. Wow. Um, but, uh, but also kind of happy in a way. Awesome. Well, let's talk about you. So how do you relax? And I don't mean uh, like everybody says, go and take a nap or exercise, but how do you really relax? And then what makes you happy besides your family? Oh, that's such a great question. So, um, you know, I think in the last 10 years, I've really thought about not how I relax, but how do I get enjoyment out of life? And I think it's very hard. I have four kids, which is a lot. And it's very, you know, and and I think my mom did a good job in our family of like, nobody likes a martyr. You know, no one wants to be like, oh, here I am putting dinner on the table again. You know, it's just (laughs) like that. So I love horseback riding. And in the last probably 10 years, I really decided that I would invest in that. Like I would get myself a horse. I would try to get better. I had a lot of bad falls early on. So I had a lot of fear that I've had to work through, Um, but that I would, I would do it at a high level. And so part of living here in Florida in the winter, I go back and forth to shoot in New York all the time. It's a very easy trip in and out Um, was like, I want to live in a place where in the winter I can ride and enjoy it. You know, in the, we can ride in New York, but it's cold and miserable and icy and scary. And so you know, and I, I have always been very lucky. I often tell young women, mostly, like, be careful who you pick as a partner. Because my husband was like, okay, you know, you you get to you get to have your wants and dreams and things you want to accomplish too. And he has his list of what he wants to accomplish. And so I always was very grateful that when I said I wanted to go to Florida, he's like, okay, you know, all right, <laughs> let's let's figure it out. And I think we do that kind of for every member of the family, like, all right. You know, you want to you want to play ice hockey? Let's figure it out. You want to do that? Let's figure it out. And we've been very fortunate in that regard. So I probably my thing would be riding and riding is expensive and time consuming. So 
it really is that. I just don't do much other than that. Um, I try to keep in shape, but I wouldn't say like working out is fun. And I wouldn't say that I would say like, I, I do it to check off the box. Like, yes, I worked out. I don't, and, you know, I, I like it fine, but, um, but really my fun thing is horseback riding. And I've just started competing here in Florida and it's, you know, and I'm not very good and I'm very low level, but I enjoy it. And I like pushing myself to try to get better. That's awesome. awesome. What about your you know, favorite fruit food? I got to uh, find out. Oh, I eat everything. I really <laughs> literally have. I, I love Cuban food. My mom was Cuban. It was a great cook. And so I had to fly out of the Miami airport the other day. And um, there's a place called La Careta. I think it's Careta um, in the airport. And I was having like the most amazing black beans and rice. Oh. And I mean, just so good. My mom, my mom was a great cook. So not as good as my mom's, but pretty, pretty good for like airport cafeteria food. So I love Cuban food. A t- I mean, and I just, I could literally eat black beans and rice every single day and be happy as a clam. Mm, yeah. uh, I don't cook myself. My mom was a great cook and I don't cook. So, so I'm also not very picky. Like I'll eat anything if someone else makes it. I hate to cook. <laughs> yes, that's me. I'll eat anything if somebody else cooks it. And I'll clean up too. I'm a very, I'm very picky about how like my pots are cleaned. I do not like, you know, some people do the this and it's uh, like no. good, but not great. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. I like a very spotless dishware kitchen. So I will do all the cleaning. I don't mind, but I will not cook. That's awesome. So I'd like to say also before I left your holiday party back in December, you gave out jars of SOB honey. I so know, do you isn't it a- good? Did you try it? Yes, of course. <laughs> it's so it is good, good, isn't it? Yeah. So do you have a bee farm or? We, uh, first of all, they're called Beehive City Lady. Beehive. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we do have a couple of beehives and um, out at our house, which is in Dutchess County, uh, we we have a decent sized space, so we were able to throw some beehives up, and we all knew that bees were really, um, really struggling. So we thought we would do our part. The thing that was amazing was the minute we got bees, we have um we have like a field, you know, like and and it was amazing how the bees just the field was just blooming. It was just this incredible symbiotic relationship. Like you leave the field alone, you get bees. The bees just pollinate all the flowers. The flowers help the bee. I mean, it was just amazing. <laughs> So it's been really, it's been really great. It's been fun. I have a guy who helps me. So believe me, I'm not putting on the bee suit and, uh, and, and collecting the honey, <laughs> although we, we definitely, you know, kind of get it all together, but it's been a really, it's been a really fun thing. And the honey is really, really good. And I guess it is. they say it's great for allergies. So if you're, if you're okay. in Dutchess County or wherever you get local honey, it really helps with your allergies. That's awesome. Yes, we Ashley got a jar. I got a jar. I've killed my jar. Yeah, well, I'll give you another jar. I'll give you guys. uh, The problem is it's it's more than three ounces, so I can't fly it to anybody. It's a pain. You have to come to my house and pick up your own jar, but I will hold your. It's so good. And I have friends who are like, yeah, my jar is out. I'm going to need some more honey. Can you bring (laughs) it? It's that good. It's really good. That's well, awesome. if you're in New York in May, I'll bring my jar and you can just refill it. Perfect. <laughs> so I have a question. As as a young girl, what did you want to be when you grew up? Uh, that's a great question. I wanted to be med. I wanted to go to med school. I thought I'd be a doctor. I like the idea of helping people, which I think, you know, one of the things I try to advise young people about is like helping people can be a lot of different things. You hear my dogs making all this noise. I do. Hey, I do. Those are our 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 pandemic puppies. And they were so good for the bulk of this 
this podcast and then now they're making noise. Um, so I, I thought I wanted to, you know, be a doctor, although I didn't care that much about the science of it. I like the idea of helping people. And mm. one of the things I like to tell young people is like, there's a lot of versions of that. Like, don't get stuck in this. I had a vision when I was 13 and you're you know, <laughs> right. like, what does it mean to help people? I think, I think I help people a lot, you know, and doing a very different, and I think there's literally 199 ways to be helpful to people. So I've tried to really um, kind of open up people's concepts of that. I love doing hair again, also not particularly good at it. And I love people who are great at hair, but I was like, you know, I should really be doing hair. Uh, but of course I don't think that's ever going to happen. <laughs> Okay. Well, I think Marcy has one of our last questions coming I, up. I do. I want to say though, Soledad's dogs, puppies, but they do not look like puppies are beautiful because oh. yes, I've seen them on Twitter. Oh. They are yeah, gorgeous. They I just are. have to say they are gorgeous. Oh, and here's Teddy. Hang on. <laughs> Hi, Teddy. Oh, my God. oh wow. They're beautiful. Teddy, are you behaving? And they're puppies? Teddy is one year old and Coco is two years old. They're a year apart. And wow. I, would, I would say they behave, um, they're mediocre. <laughs> Coco's perfect. Coco's perfect. And Teddy needs a lot of work. Teddy is, Teddy is, Teddy's, is that Teddy looking one. up? There's you always one. Teddy. He's the one. He is the right. He's like, they're really good. They're relaxed. Uh-huh. Yeah, because you can't take pictures when they're not vegging out and they're running exactly. around. Like, no, no. <laughs> so it's like, do I take pictures when they're lying down? Like, yes. How else would I take a picture? <laughs> no, they're very good. And they've been a real joy. They've been a lot of fun, but they are a ton of work. Sweet boys, yes. They're so I did cute. have a question for you, Soledad. You're very family oriented, and I love that about you. And then you still have your career going, your business, all of that. It's and I'm going to tell you right now, I have a 14 year old daughter that wants to go into journalism, and at Yay! first, I'm like, oh, I want to be a teacher. And now she's starting to get older, and she's a pretty good writer too. So, which I, I thought this is awesome. That's good for her. And on her own, she came to us like, I think I want to go into journalism, and I'm like, okay, great. Well, what do you need to do for it? And she's like, well, I need to do this and this, and I've been looking this up. And I'm like, that's awesome. Good but for her. So, yes, I'm really happy for her and proud of her. But I shared your book with her, and she read it, and she was like, Mom, that was good. I said, I told you. <laughs> so she's like I know but I have one last question and that's with you being family oriented and all of that and I know you mentioned about your parents earlier what's one tradition that you have kept and you're mm-hmm. passing on to your children and hope that they pass on you know such a great question and I'm not good at traditions but my husband's amazing He's always been so good at traditions. It's very important to him. And if, if it weren't for him, I don't think we'd have a lot because I'm, I'm disorganized and forgetful. <laughs> and so I'd be like, oh, he should have done this. But, but he's really on top of it. So I would say we used to, pre-pandemic, we went to Europe every Christmas. And we'd spend two weeks in a different city. We used to do a house swamp. We would swap our home for somebody else's. There's a place called homeexchange.com. Oh, wow. online. And I mean, especially since we had a house in New York City where people wanted to swap. So we went to Rome and Paris and um, uh, we went to South Africa. We went to um, Uruguay. We went to uh, Buenos Aires. You know, so, so we, we swapped a lot of houses. Um, and it was very helpful because you end up swapping for, with people who want a house, right? Yeah. It's like they want to be in New York City, but they don't want to be in an expensive apartment. It's free. They pay you nothing. You pay them nothing. And it, home exchange it was great. So I haven't used it for a few years, but we thought it was fantastic. 
And when the kids were little to be able to be in a house and often the people who had the house, they had kids too. So you'd have toys and things. And so that was really great. So that was a really good tradition that ended when we obviously couldn't travel in the pandemic. The other tradition is we tend to Brad's parents, Brad's mom is a great cook and they tend, we tend to do every Thanksgiving together. And my, I trend, my, my, I don't cook, but I can make gravy. I actually make Ooh. amazing gravy, not to Brad, <laughs> but honestly, amazing gravy. Now my husband's a vegan, so I have to make vegan gravy and then regular gravy. <laughs> but I, one tradition that I'm very proud of is I can really cook five things. I can make a great stew. I can, make, and I'm from a big family, so I can only make it in giant pots, right? I can't make anything right. in a normal size, two-person meal. I can make stew. I can make amazing gravy. I can make great, uh, like, um, meat sauce, which kind of transitions into lasagna, like a spicy sausage uh-huh. lasagna. I can make really good rice. I'm Cuban, so obviously, like, That's I think they kick you out of the club if you can't make rice. Like, why bother? And then I can make one other. What's the other? I can't remember the other thing. But I make, but they're all, like, heavy they're all like heavy winter dishes. Hearty, yeah. I'll often in the middle of somebody like, who wants to? Like, it's like, <laughs> it's 90 degrees. Why would anybody <laughs> want to? So, so it is, I am often mocked in my family for like, well, it's really hot. What should we have? And I had a few people say, mom, maybe you could make stew. And I can only cook five things about our Thanksgiving tradition. I do nothing at all. I sit there with a cocktail. Yeah, a big spoon, and I stir the gravy because it takes a lot of stirring to make good gravy. And my gravy is great if you can make okay. a good gravy that's thanksgiving right there <laughs> actually is not i mean i don't brag about a lot of stuff but my gravy is amazing that's awesome that's awesome it. i'll have to tell my husband about that because he makes great gravy also oh oh sounds like a competition that sounds like <laughs> it sounds like it so you know i just want to almost wrap this up your service to this country and to oh. the world are appreciated by us here at the island, I'm sure millions and millions of people. We always end our podcast telling listeners what we are grateful for. Mm -hmm. And I will say I'm grateful for our time with you today. God has blessed this world with you. You are welcome at the island anytime. And please come back. Please. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yes, I absolutely will. Thank you. I appreciate it. So if there's nothing else, ladies. Thank you, Soledad. Thank you. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate you. Thank you. (laughs) I know, like our green. This is kind of an unusual green. So yeah, we kind of. color, though. That's a good color. I do. I like it. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a good night, Soledad. Thanks. You too. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. I'll be in touch. Love it.